Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. The government of Ontario remains resolved to proceed with its court challenge of the federal government's imposition of its carbon tax. I spoke with the Premier of Ontario, Doug Ford, about that. Have a listen. It seems British Columbia's emissions are going up despite Canada's highest carbon tax. Chris Sims is the BC Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. She put it all together and explained it to us. Dr. Bjorn Lomborg was declared by Time magazine to be among the world's 100 most influential people. He heads the Copenhagen Consensus Centre think tank, and he says the truth about climate change is nuanced. It's real, and in the long term will be a problem, but its impact is less than we might believe. And yet we're too eager to believe the problem is far worse than science shows, just as activists and the media engender fear by associating every fire, flood, and hurricane with climate change. Have a listen to what uh, Bjorn Lomborg said to us. Is President Trump losing what he used to call my generals? I spoke with Colonel Peter Mansour, military historian and professor at Ohio State University. He was also the executive officer to General David Petraeus in Iraq. He was sworn in this past Thursday as the new Utah GOP senator. And Mitt Romney didn't waste any time after accepting Donald Trump's endorsement prior to the election to write a scathing op-ed in the Washington Post about the president. Grant Coombs is the managing editor for Rasmussen Reports and a former editor of the Washington Times. He talked to us about that and about the rather strong, rude and crude language used by not only a, an elected Democrat, but also by a former Canadian Prime Minister. Have a listen. The carbon tax being imposed on provinces that don't satisfy the federal government's expectations. One of those provinces is, of course, the province of Ontario, and we're joined by the Premier of Ontario, Doug Ford. Mr. Premier, good to talk to you. Well, it's always great to be on with you, Ryan. I always say on, on the media side, you're, you're one of the few that, that come across common sense. Well, thank you. <laughs> I listen to you. I think it's, it's great. We I appreciate that. So, so what is the Trudeau government doing to violate Ontario's jurisdiction with its imposition of the federal carbon tax? Well, I've always said, Roy, and I said it during the, the campaign, this is the, the worst tax uh, anyone could put on the on the backs of businesses and the backs of everyday people that that have to go and, and pay their uh, you know their, their gas at the pumps every single uh, day or every three four days uh, we we reduce the, the taxes on on the uh, gas even though gas has gone down right across the country we still uh, reduced it by about four and a half cents per liter which which helps put money back into people's pockets but this is, uh, I've had this conversation with uh, the Prime Minister a few times. We, uh, uh, we agree to disagree on, on this. And uh, at the end of the day, uh, Roy, at the end of the day, and I, I use the words of my friend Scott Moe and what a, what a great premier he is, uh, it's not going to be uh, Scott Moe, Doug Ford, or Justin Trudeau making this decision. Uh, it's going to be a judge. A judge is going to make this decision, and hopefully... Uh, They'll, they'll make the right decision for the, the people of uh, this country, not not just Ontario, but right across this great country. Now, you and I both know the federal government will argue they must be able to demand adherence to a national policy because otherwise one province could render a federal requirement to be ineffective. I've always thought that federal-provincial negotiation is the way to do it, but the Ottawa Liberals have been issuing an agree or will push you aside edict since being elected. Now, the fact that three provinces are opposed to the federal carbon tax now, and a fourth may join them very shortly after the Alberta election, suggests to me that there's a really significant problem 
with, uh, with, with, with Mr. Trudeau's uh, carbon tax as far as acceptance is concerned. But, Mr. Ford, the federal government will still argue they have to have the right to do what they're doing. Well, they, they, they may look at it that way, but uh, we look at it uh, differently. First of all, when we were in, in Montreal a few weeks back, uh, all the premiers met, and uh, the prime minister decided to change the rules in the middle of the game. Uh, we're right now, we have a, a great plan. Uh, we've reduced uh, emissions by 22%. Uh, the Paris Agreement is 30%. We have to uh, hit our goal uh, over the, the next 12 years, and we're going to definitely hit our goal. And compared to the rest of the, the country, as we've uh, had reductions of 22%, the average across the country is up 3%. And I, I guess what he, he's looking at is there certain rules that apply for certain areas of the country and certain uh, companies, and then other areas, there's, a, there's another rule. And when I sat down with him in front of all the premiers, uh, he said, well, basically that uh, some have to carry more water than, than others. Well, there's going to be a rule. There has to be one rule for everyone right across the board. And uh, let's use uh, Nova Scotia, uh, for instance. And they're great people, by the way, out in Nova Scotia. You know, they, they're, they have uh, coal. Uh, that's an issue, but they're they're exempt, per se, and uh, other areas in the country are exempt, but uh, other areas aren't. So either you you play by the same rules, and uh, everyone has to have the same reductions, uh, or, you know, just uh, just not right to other provinces that uh, have to carry the water. We shouldn't even be doing this at all. This is the worst tax ever, this carbon tax away. Yeah, Premier, you're being attacked constantly over doing away with Ontario's participation in the cap-and-trade scheme with Quebec and uh, California. And there were problems there with Ontario being able to uh, claim uh, reductions that were made by California and Quebec. But you're, you're being attacked on that. It's also been said, and you've been accused of um, really creating your own carbon tax by the initiatives that you have underway for, for uh, um, you know, charging the, the province's largest emitters. What do you say to that? Well, again, um, that, that's uh, their, their opinion. Uh, my opinion is we, we're getting rid of this. We're going to fight uh, tooth and nail to get rid of this uh, uh, this tax uh, with, a, with a cap and trade. Uh, what you mentioned about uh, Quebec and California, we were paying, uh, and I think I'm pretty close to these figures, over $469 million uh, between California and uh, Quebec, which it should be staying in, in the province to create more jobs more investment into, into companies, and uh, we're, we're just going to uh, keep moving forward. Uh, I'll, I'll give you another example. Since we've been in office, uh, we, we scrapped the Green Energy Act, too. I call it the Green Energy Scam. Uh, Roy, we've saved the taxpayers, uh, or the ratepayers, I should say, over $700 million, $790 million by, by cancelling this. But the, the carbon tax uh, goes back to one area that we're focusing on in Ontario, and that's jobs, jobs, jobs. Uh, this is a job killer. It's the, the worst tax you could ever put on the backs of businesses. And, and again, uh, it would affect every single item. People go into the store to buy, no matter if it's a loaf of bread or a pound of butter. Uh, they're going to be paying more for that. Uh, and, and, and what has bothered me uh, ever since this, is, this has come out, uh, it's a tax. A tax is a tax is a tax. And he wants to throw in the word carbon in front of it. Well, I'm, I'm sorry. You have, uh, we're, we're dealing now on uh, uh, worldwide. We aren't, we aren't trading against uh, people down the street any longer. We're competing against the United States. Uh, and uh, just a, alone uh, with the United States, uh, worldwide, Roy, we do about $500 billion in trade. $489 billion of that is with the United States. And it's like trying to compete with one arm type 100 back under yeah. the levels. We've lost 300,000 manufacturing jobs. Under our administration, we're creating jobs, and we're going to make an environment uh, that attracts businesses. Well, you know, the carbon tax and the whole issue about the energy uh, sector in this country is an embarrassment. We should not have a, a significant part of our population trying to stay, keep their heads above water when they have right in front of them available, not only to this country, but to the international marketplace, a product that the world wants. We can't get it to the, to the uh, export locations on, on, the, on the shores of the oceans because we don't have the pipelines, and the pipelines have essentially been uh, blocked with uh, Bill C-69, or at least that's going to be the plan. Um, and we're importing 800,000 barrels a day for eastern refineries from, from, from foreign 
sources. You beat me to it. You beat me to it. I'm going to say right. we're importing eight hundred thousand barrels a day. And in, in a lot of cases, we're shipping we're shipping oil uh, down to the U.S. and then rebuying it. That's what that's what Canadians don't understand. So we're we're giving it to our, our, our greatest partners in the world, and I truly believe that they're an incredible uh, country. So we're we're shipping it down at a discount and then repurchasing it. That that just doesn't make sense. Premier, I only have a couple of minutes left with you. Um, the Minister for the Environment, McKenna, tweets that 80% of Canadians will see more money returned to them in rebates over what they pay in carbon tax. Now, maybe the minister's unaware, as you pointed out, that all consumer goods travel on trucks, which run on diesel, which is going up in price, which will be passed on to the, to the, to the consumer. But she tweets that uh, 80% of, uh, of Canadians will receive more money back in rebates then they pay in the carbon tax. What would you say to the minister? Well, you know, with, with all due respect, I, I just, uh, the minister's being disingenuous. That, that's how I can say it, politically correct and, and as polite as I can. But that, that, that's, uh, that's a bunch of hogwash, <laughs> to put it bluntly. Uh, you're going to be paying uh, a lot more for every single item uh, you pick up in the grocery store. Every time you come and go to work, you're going to be paying more at the pumps. When you drop your kids off at uh, soccer or hockey, you're going to be paying more. So I'm, I'm not too sure the, the math uh, the minister's doing, but it's not accurate. Now, how do you measure? Uh, some people use more gas getting to work uh, than others. So it, it's a terrible, terrible tax, and we're trying to compete against uh, regions of uh, the, the U.S. Uh, even, even some of the most progressive regions out west of the U.S. voted against the carbon tax. The state of Washington. State of, there you go. The state of Washington, probably one of the most progressive uh, states in, in uh, the country, uh, voted against it because people realize it. They read right through it, see right through it. They know everything's going to be going up, and uh, we, we have to compete. And we're going to compete in, in the province of Ontario. Another big issue, or and I don't want to get off topic, is uh, trade. Uh, it's harder to trade uh, between provinces than it is south of the border. So we, we have to get rid of the, the regulations. In Ontario, we inherited over 380,000 regulations, um, and uh, a lot of it is uh, just regulations. So we're working with uh, Saskatchewan, uh, both provinces, to get rid of, rid of as many regulations as we can until we can have uh, free trade between the provinces. And other provinces are, are welcome to jump on board and uh, as, as one of the CEOs of one of the five big banks came up and said, Doug, it's costing uh, right down the GDP, uh, this uh, internal trade that uh, that's a big problem in our, our country, over $50 billion a year. We have to get rid of regulations. We have to lower taxes. And we have to put money back into the taxpayer's pocket rather than the government's pocket. The government, my folks, all they want to do is gouge you. Every single chance they have, they want to put your hand in your pocket and take out as much money uh, as they can. We're doing something a little different in Ontario. We're putting as much money back into your pocket as possible. And something the, that your critics seem to forget, and that is that you want a majority government, and uh, not at, not least because of the miserable record of the 13 years preceding here. Well, we're, we're the, the people of um, Ontario, we're, we're facing a $15 billion deficit. Uh, which uh, we're, we're going to uh, make sure we balance, but we're going to balance it responsibly. And uh, we always say Ontario is open for business. There's a new government, a government that's going to create the environment to prosper and create jobs and uh, create create wealth for everyone. I'm, I'm excited for 2019. I'll tell you, Roy. Premier, let me ask you this. This, this, this battle between the province of Ontario and the federal government. And it's going to be a battle, and it's going to be widely reported on, as you know. Every every nuance is going to be filling up all sorts of time and space. It really is. Don't you think? It's a, it's a battle about the October 21st federal election. It's going to turn out to be a battle for the hearts and minds and support of Ontario voters. Mm-hmm. I agree. I agree 100%. And uh, the voters are going to have to decide, do you want to pay more? Day in and day out. Do you want, you want to, you know, every time you go to the gas pumps, do you want to pay more? Your home heating bills, do you want to pay more? And the answer is overwhelmingly no. 
if you vote for Justin Trudeau, your taxes are going up, your gas prices are going up, every item you buy in the store is going up, and uh, we won't be able to compete. And and the other area is uh, we're going to lose jobs. You know, companies have a choice nowadays. They're either going to open up in one of the provinces and thrive, or they're just going to go down south. That's that's what it's come down to. Well, I appreciate you joining me. You said you didn't want to go off topic. I'm okay if you do. (laughs) It's a pleasure listening to you. I'm a a big listener, and I I learn a lot off your uh, your show. So keep it up and uh, never give up. Well, I, I, I won't, but I, ho- I hope we can talk to you on a, on a reasonably regular basis and just stay in touch. Uh, we will, absolutely. All Look right. Forward to it. Premier, thanks, thank, so thanks for the time. Thanks, Roy. You take care. You too. Premier Doug Ford of Ontario. Now, joining me on the show, and uh, I'm looking forward to speaking with her, is Chris Sims. She's the British Columbia Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. And uh, Chris posted on, uh, on Twitter and at Taxpayer. I saw it on Facebook as well. BC emissions going up despite Canada's highest carbon tax. Chris, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for the invitation. Now, um, if I can ask you, first of all, what, uh, what's your impression of what you heard from, uh, from Premier Ford? Well, I think as far as the carbon tax goes, he's bang on. And it's really refreshing to sense this reawakening happening in the province of Ontario. I spent a lot of time uh, living and working there the majority actually of the past 17 years. And I know that between the carbon tax and the green energy scams that were being run by that last government, that day-to-day living for everyday people was getting unaffordable. And so it's really heartening to hear politicians caring about how much it costs to fill up your gas tank and how much it costs to heat and run your home. So Uh, Kudos to the government. It's one of the reasons why uh, we're backing them up on this carbon tax fight. And it's a I hope it catches on out here (laughs) on this side of the Rockies. So let's talk about this now. Your numbers, BC figures show carbon tax. The carbon tax is taking money out of British Columbians pockets while carbon dioxide emissions continue to climb year over year. Now, before we speak about numbers, please speak to the constant messaging that carbon taxes will effectively reduce carbon dioxide emissions, because that's the sales pitch. Yes, exactly. Every time we hear politicians open their mouths, uh, whether it's here in Canada or at some international climate junket that they have jetted to, they will say that carbon taxes reduce CO2 emissions, uh, impose a carbon tax or put a price on carbon or price pollution, and you will have a reduction in CO2 and carbon dioxide emissions. That's what they say. And that's what we were told out here back in 2008 when it was imposed on British Columbians at $10 a ton way back then. Guess what? Our CO2 emissions are going up, even though we have the highest carbon tax in Canada. So if the carbon tax is not reducing CO2 emissions within the province of British Columbia at its highest rate in Canada, why are we doing this? Well, exactly. $20 per ton from the Trudeau government clearly isn't going to work. And it's only, as I was saying to the Premier, a very soft introduction to what will likely be a very sharpened upward cost line to consumers for a federal carbon tax if Trudeau's re-elected. Yes, exactly. And one of the reasons why you can imagine that would happen is because Prime Minister Trudeau mentioned British Columbia several times uh, during his announcement for a federal carbon tax as an example of a good carbon tax. Uh, he referenced it out here as something that works. And I need to tell your listeners that when we were first uh, foisted upon with this carbon tax, it was $10 a ton. And they promised, the politicians promised, it would stop being jacked up at $30 a ton. Well, we're at $35 a ton now. It's going up to $40 a ton in a couple of months. And we're on track for 50 $50 a ton. Yeah, so yeah. if he's referencing us as a good example in a case study, uh, hang on to your wallets. Yeah, so, Chris, talk to us about the government figures. They tell the story. What are they? Yeah, they really do. And so what I found really interesting is that last year, at around this time, the Sierra Club of all groups noticed that the B.C. government had quietly posted their CO2 emissions just before Christmas. And they came out with it, guns a-blazing, saying our CO2 emissions are going up. Again, this is a Sierra Club. And they said, 
said that this is just representing a token effort, this highest carbon tax in Canada, and that something needed to change. Well, very similarly, just before Christmas, the government updated their CO2 emissions. And lo and behold, this is the latest data we have, because it takes them a couple of years to actually compile it. In 2015, our CO2 emissions were 61 million tons. So that was our output. In 2016, 62 million. They're going up. In fact, if you take a look, it's a massive spreadsheet that they've just posted in the middle of a paragraph on their website. If you take a look at them, our numbers have actually gone up five of the last six years. So there is an upward trend going on here in British Columbia, despite the fact that our carbon tax is going up too. So what's the voter reaction been? What's the British Columbians' reaction been to your revealing this information? You know, that's one of the funny things about British Columbia, and I think you see this to a lesser extent in other provinces when you get kind of the urban-rural split sometimes. So the rest of British Columbia, um, I would say east of the Fraser River, not the downtown Vancouver, not the downtown Victoria set, they're just like most average working Canadians. They're getting to and from work, getting to and from school. They drive everything from minivans to big trucks. Uh, Some of them are truck drivers themselves. They don't like the carbon tax. But unfortunately, here in B.C., we don't really have mainstream politicians who win seats in our legislature who campaign against it. It was brought in and imposed by the B.C. Liberal Party back in 2008, and now it's being maintained and increased by an NDP Green Coalition government. And a neat catch is that when they first introduced this, they promised it would stay revenue neutral. And you could economically argue that when it was first imposed in 2008, it technically was revenue neutral because they gave a big income tax break, big business tax breaks, but it hasn't been that way for years and years. All it was was a simple little parlor trick in their budget document. What they did actually was say they collected $1.2 billion in a carbon tax. They simply stuck it in a box in the budget document. Then they took random tax credits everything from film tax credits to children's fitness tax credits, all these random tax credits, and they shoved it inside of that carbon tax box, made it balance out to zero, abracadabra, revenue neutral. That's all it meant. Magic. Yeah, magic. Magic, magic accounting. It's, it really, it's, it's like the uh, federal environment minister tweeting, Catherine McKenna tweeting, that 80% of people who, who pay carbon tax are going to be getting more money back by way of rebates, and, and I retweeted, I tweeted back, magic. Exactly. You know, Canadians are smarter than that. They really are. I mean, that is just basic arithmetic. The idea that somehow the forced tax that we're handing over to politicians will magically come back to us bigger in number after bureaucrats are finished processing it? Like, who believes that? That's impossible. You know, and when you consider what's going on, you just look at what's happening in the, in the provinces to the east of you. With the difficulties and the challenges that they're facing, and it's unnecessary, it's unacceptable, it's unconscionable. It, this is a, this is a economic breadbasket for for Canada, which is being allowed to to shrink, almost shrivel, being encouraged to shrink by a federal administration that is running annually increasing deficits. I, I think they're saying they won't balance the budget for 40 years or something of that nature. And our national debt is, is very quickly climbing up to $700 billion. Uh, this is very serious business. We're importing 800,000 800, barrels of oil a day for eastern refineries. There doesn't seem to be an environmental concern as far as that's concerned. There's so much going on that's disingenuous, so much going on that's shady, that if it were a casino, you wouldn't go inside. It's grim, isn't it? And um, I grew up out west here, uh, rurally, and I have a resource-based town. And I remember, even as a small child, what the NEP did to people out here out west. And I'm hearing a lot from people saying this feels like it all over again, only it feels worse in many ways because now their neighbors in urban places like Ontario, um, probably your listeners accepted, Montreal, places like that are saying, yeah, well, go ahead and lose your job. Yeah, well, we don't like oil and gas anymore. And it's spoken usually by people who are at the height of the food chain and not realizing that oil and gas are the lifeblood of our modern world. 
just look around. Um, everything we eat and use is trucked to us. It's manufactured exactly. using this stuff. It's essential. And I think that's what's really adding insult to injury here is because, as you point out, the Alberta government, when they imposed their carbon tax on their people, adding insult to injury, they said, hey, this is going to create a social license. Everybody, all these environmentalists that dislike oil and gas right now will suddenly like it and allow for our pipelines to go through and allow for our, our products to get to market because of a social license. Well, that hasn't happened. The B.C. government is actively blockading the Trans Mountain Pipeline, which runs out to Burnaby here on the West Coast, despite the fact that Albertans are suffering under a carbon tax and British Columbians have been putting up with the carbon tax for the past 11 years. And so it's a real loser on all fronts. It's no longer revenue neutral. It is not being funded into green technology. It has not given us a social license and it hasn't reduced CO2 emissions. There is a lot of work to be done, and uh, and it's it's pursuing the truth, and getting the truth out. and And I am really encouraged, though, by the poll that came out of Quebec, the Leger poll for the Montreal Economic Institute. And you heard the prime minister say uh, just prior to the poll that there was no social license, and the premier of Quebec had said it for pipelines and for Alberta, dirty Alberta energy or Western energy heading through through the province of of Quebec. But then we find that sixty six percent of Quebecers favor Western oil. And forty-five uh, percent, which is a massive, uh, uh, massively the, the 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 highest number that they got, uh, favor pipelines. So Quebecers are very much in favor of Western oil. They're very very much supportive of of pipelines. And uh, so what the Prime Minister has said and what the Premier of Quebec has said, as the Montreal Economic Institute representative told us, that's the elite way of thinking. It's not the average person who's trying to struggle through life, pay bills. And, and expects to get the, the best management possible out of, out of politicians. It's, uh, it, it, the, the word keeps coming back, doesn't it, Chris? Disingenuous. It is disingenuous. Disingenuous. And, and I think we need to start calling uh, the, pet, the, the kettle black. Yeah. Um, it is completely disingenuous. And to your point, I spent a lot of time also working uh, in Quebec, and you're exactly right. The moment you get out of those little halls of power, <laughs> you get average, normal, working people, yeah. because they are average, normal, working yeah. people. The rusty minivan. Yes, exactly. That's what I used to say. It's the rusty minivan. Exactly. And to give you a very quick example, for folks who don't get how much this will cost you at the pump, right now at $35 per ton, which is what we're at out here in BC, it costs you, for an average Toyota Camry, for a full fill-up, it's an extra 6 bucks every fill-up just for the carbon tax. And that hurts. Yeah, it does. A Dodge Ram pickup truck, more than 10 bucks. Ford Super Duty diesel, $17. Every time. That's just in the carbon tax, not touching anything else. Thanks so much for doing the research you've done and sharing it with this country. And the voters in British Columbia have a decision to make. And I think that uh, I, I, I hope, I suspect, you will have helped them to make the decision. I hope we're a warning to the rest of Canada. Thank you so much. Thanks, Chris. Bye-bye. Chris Sims, the British Columbia Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Dr. Bjorn Lomborg was declared by Time magazine to be among the world's 100 most influential people he heads the Copenhagen Consensus Center think tank, and he agrees that climate change is real, but argues in a news release from this past Friday that the truth about climate change is nuanced. It is real, and in the long term, it'll be a problem, but its impact is less than we might believe. And yet we're too eager to believe the problem is far worse than science shows. Just as activists and the media engender fear by associating every fire, flood, and hurricane with climate change, they generate a false belief that there are simple solutions to the problem. Dr. Lomborg joins us from Copenhagen. Happy birthday. Hey, thank you very much, Roy. <laughs> um, so can, can you just expand on that a bit, uh, Dr. Lomborg? It's real, it's nuanced, it's not as uh, terrifying as it's made out to be. Well, I mean, it's actually a couple of different things, right? First, uh, we we get the sense that every bad thing is caused by global warming. Uh, and, of course, there's no good things about global warming. That makes it this almost cartoon kind of uh, figure in, in the conversation. But the reality is global warming will cause a number of problems. It'll actually also cause a number of benefits to a lot of people. And just you know, to give you one example, uh, as temperatures rise, we're going to see more heat waves and hence more people hit by uh, heat death. But we're also going to see fewer cold waves and hence fewer people hit with cold deaths. That matters because cold deaths outweigh cold heat, uh, sorry, heat deaths uh, 17 to 1 
uh, globally. So many, many more people die from cold than from heat. And so there's both positives and negatives. In the overall long-term impact of global warming, there are going to be more negatives than positives, which is why it's a problem. But this relentless sense of it's the end of the world is not helping, partly because it's untrue, but partly because it also puts people in a mode of panic. Uh, I don't know if you did, uh, you heard, but last year, uh, 2018, was the first year in the U.S. history where there was no severe tornadoes. No, yeah. that's not. But that's yeah, not talked about. about that. That's not talked about. No, because it doesn't fit into the narrative that we have about global warming. And again, let's just emphasize: global warming is real. Global warming is overall a problem. But only talking about in this one way that says the world is going to come to an end if we don't do anything about global warming is very, very unhelpful. Actually, some of the world's top economists, and including the guy who just got the Nobel uh, Prize for uh, climate economics, uh, uh, Dr. Nordhaus, he has looked at how much will unchecked global warming cost by the end of the century. And the answer is, by looking across about 250 period estimates of what will it cost, the answer is somewhere between 2 and 4% of global GDP. Now, that's not nothing, but remember, that is in a world by the end of the century where we, on average, will be somewhere between 300 and 1,000 percent richer per person in this world. So we'll be 300 to 1,000 percent richer. And then, yes, we will see a reduction of 2 to 4 percent because of global warming. That's a problem, but not the end of the world. I want to tell our, uh, our listeners as well that they can read your columns for Project Syndicate in six languages or globally. Your column appears in, uh, in newspapers in many countries around the world. And they can go to the Copenhagen Consensus Center uh, website to find out more. Uh, Dr. Lomborg, you also write, the focus on climate change draws resources best used elsewhere. We've talked about that before, but I think it's really important to, 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 to repeat because I find now that there's a great deal more emotion involved when I talk to people about climate change than there was even a year ago. There's an instant jump to, well, 99% of the world scientists say that it's it's a cataclysmic event waiting to happen, and then the the shutters come down, and there's no discussion beyond that. And and one of these things is, of course, that it has become certainly in the U.S. has been become more of a marker of what political party you belong to. Uh, so uh, really smart Democrats cannot sort of get let go of the fact that it's a tremendously uh, apocalyptic event. And likewise, really smart Republicans can't let go of the, uh, the, the sense that this is just made up. And of course, both of them are wrong. It's a real issue, but it's not the end of the world. And if we start realizing this is, like many other things, a problem we need to fix, then we can also start having a sensible conversation about what should we do about it. And the reality is most of the proposals that are on the table right now uh, have, have the sense that, well, if, the, if it's the end of the world, we should throw everything and the kitchen sink at it. But, of course, the reality is there are many other problems in the world that we need to fix. So we have limited resources to fix global warming, and we need to use them smartly to find the cheapest, most effective ways to tackle most of what we can do about global warming. That will only happen if we can stop this apocalyptic conversation and start this smart, all right, we have a problem, how do we fix it? I remember you and I speaking prior to the 2015 Paris um, uh, COP, Agreement, yeah. whatever the number was, COP21, COP21, COP21. We spoke prior to that and then immediately afterward. And, and you pointed out the, the, the numbers of dollars involved and, and what those dollars will accomplish as far as climate change is concerned and what they could accomplish as far as looking after what the world's immediate and current needs are. And I'll look at a, another release from, uh, from you uh, just a couple of days ago. Another climate summit means more expensive, ineffective promises. And the, the release says in part the climate summit in Poland has been given a boost in recent weeks by well-timed climate change reports shaping the news agenda. But if we dig deeper than most of the media did, these reports demonstrate what is wrong with global warming policy discussion. Talk to that. Speak to that, please. Yeah. 
So, so I mean, uh, uh, as, as we talked about back in Paris, and I think that may be the, you know, the sort of main point, almost all nations except the U.S. right now have signed up to the uh, Paris Agreement. And if everyone kept all of their promises and did so smartly, we would probably talk about a cost of somewhere between $1 and $2 trillion a year starting in 2030. That's a lot of money. Remember, it's not going to bring us to the poorhouse. We're still talking about 1% to 2% of global GDP. So, you know, it's, it's manageable, but it's, uh, it's by any means the most expensive treaty ever done in human history. Just to give you a sense of proportion, the previously most expensive treaty was the Versailles Treaty that ended the First World War, and it cost in today's dollars about a quarter of a trillion dollars once. The Paris Agreement is four times more expensive, but it's every year for the rest of the century. So it's tremendously more expensive. Yet the impacts are terribly, terribly small. If everyone does everything they promised in Paris, get this, we will achieve about 1% of the cuts that are needed to get us to two degrees uh, centigrade, which is what everybody is promising and everybody is talking about. So by spending more than, you know, more than any other treaty in the world, we'll reach just a tiny, tiny bit of the way to the goal that most climate campaigners are arguing for. Yet the same one to two trillion dollars could pretty much save all other problems in the world. You could eradicate global poverty. You could give everyone food. You could basically stop everyone from dying from easily curable infectious diseases. You could get good education to everyone. You could fix so many of these important problems that everybody agrees on and still have lots and lots of money left over. And so my question really is, why is it we want as our legacy for the future to have focused so exclusively on one problem solving it very inefficiently, spending more than a trillion dollars to achieve almost nothing, when that same trillion dollars could have saved almost everyone from all the obvious problems of today. That is the real moral question I think everyone has to ask themselves. Dr. Lomborg, thank you so much for the time. It's CopenhagenConsensus.com is the uh, website for uh, for your think tank. And you always give us lots to think about. And again, happy birthday to you. I want to ask you which one Thank it is. Thank you very much. All the best. <laughs> 54. 54? It's a good number. Take care. Thanks. Dr. Bjorn Lomborg joining us from Copenhagen. So think about that. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Question is, is President Trump losing what he used to refer to as my generals? General James Mattis resigned as Secretary of Defense. General John Kelly resigns as White House Chief of Staff. And now, Pentagon Chief of Staff Admiral Kevin Sweeney has announced his resignation. So I don't know if the U.S. military or some members of the military, senior ones, are sending a direct message to and public message to the President of the United States. Colonel Peter Mansour joins me, military historian, professor at Ohio State uh, University, former brigade commander in Iraq, and executive officer to General David Petraeus during the surge. His books include, uh, in fact, Surge and Baghdad at Sunrise. Colonel Mansour, thank you very much for the time. And should we read anything specific into the departures of Generals Madison Kelly and now Admiral Sweeney, um, essentially from the Trump administration? Well, I think you can definitely read something into the departure of Secretary Mattis. Uh, He um, excoriated the president in his resignation letter, saying that uh, we need to value our allies and alliances, and by leaving the Kurds to their fate, uh, and the Kurds were the ones that uh, helped the United States and our allies defeat ISIS in in Raqqa, um, that we are simply abandoning them. And uh, it sends a really bad message to any group that wants to ally in the United States in the future that we're not a reliable partner. So I think you can definitely read something into the departure of Secretary Mattis. Um, the others, you know, Kelly was sort of on the hot seat for, for quite a while. And, um, you know, I wouldn't read too much into that. But uh, And I don't know about uh, Admiral Sweeney. You know, I have no idea what his thought process was. But I think overall the generals 
in uniform uh, will continue to serve the president. However, the ones out of uniform are increasingly speaking up and uh, saying he's ethically unfit to be president of the United States. You could see that, for instance, in General Stanley McChrystal's recent comments on TV. You and I spoke at the time Barack Obama was president of the United States about uh, some issues members of the military might have. And I remember saying to you, if there was a room full of uh, military people and uh, a question was raised about the competency of President Obama as commander-in-chief, he said the serving members, if I remember correctly, would stay seated. The retired ones would get up and walk out. Are we, are we at the same stage? Uh, you know, I think uh, we're about at the same stage with uh, on the other, you know, on the other side, different party, but same sort of feeling that the the president is is unfit uh, to serve. Now, I would say, comparing the two, there's no comparison. President Obama was uh, was much more uh, fit to serve in, in the sense that he at least read his briefings, he at least uh, argued his policy options. Uh, with President Trump, it's unclear that he takes. Uh, any advice other than what he sees on TV and and what comes from his own mind, which is really dangerous. So then we add to this whole uh, goulash uh, what an American withdrawal from Syria might mean, and the president now apparently is not going to remove the the 2,000 troops as quickly as initially thought, at least that's what we're hearing. Um, but, But ISIS lurks, still remains, and we're back to the matter of whether you're fighting an ideology instead of an army. And if you're fighting an ideology, it's not just going to disappear. You can't, you can't shoot an ideology uh, and get rid of it. It's true that, that you have to battle it on all fronts, cyberspace, uh, the battle of ideas, and on the ground. But on the ground is one of the places you have to fight the, the fight. And I, I, my exhibit, number one, is the fact that there has been far fewer terrorist attacks in Europe and the United States since the caliphate has been destroyed. So clearly having that safe haven in Syria mattered to ISIS, not just in an ideological sense, but in a physical sense. It uh, gave them the space they needed to, to plan and execute terrorist operations uh, abroad. And uh, are you worried at all uh, about possible military conflict between the United States and China or Russia? You're a military historian. Are there parallels historically just before wars began to what we're seeing now? Uh, I'm not too concerned uh, as long as uh, President Trump's in office. My concern really is uh, further on out when you get a president who's more willing to push back against uh, China and Russia in a military sense. Um, Trump has pushed hard against China in terms of a trade war, but has done really very little in terms of pushing back against, uh, for instance, the occupation of uh, illegal islands in the South China Sea, man-made created islands. And, uh, of course, we all know that he has a a man crush on Vladimir Putin, so there's probably not going to be anything that happens with Russia. But the next president... Um, you know, who knows, as that president starts to push back against some of the Trump policies, there may be frictions that could lead to war. And what we've seen in the past is really big wars, like World War One. They, they can occur unexpectedly. I mean, there's, there's reasons for them, but something as simple as an assassination right. of a, an heir to a throne sparked a global conflagration in 1914. Colonel Mansour, always good talking to you. Thank you so much for the time. My pleasure, Roy. Happy New Year. And to you, Colonel Peter Mansour. Fran Coombs is the managing editor of Rasmussen Report, national polling firm, of course, big one, uh, well-respected in the United States, and he's also a former editor of the Washington Times and spent a lot of time with us on uh, certainly heading up to the 2000 and, good Lord, when was it, 16 election? Is that what it was? It's been a long time, Roy. My enjoying it, though. God. (laughs) How are you, Fran? Fine, thanks. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. Are you surprised that uh, Mitt Romney opened fire on Donald Trump in the Washington Post that fast? Yeah, I, the, the quickness of it surprised me, but I, I think all along people have suspected that uh, Romney would quickly audition for the role of the new John McCain, uh, be the, the left's media darling. Uh, so we're not surprised to see him fill the role, but the quickness with which he jumped on it is kind of a surprise. Was the message a severe as many are, I mean, I read it, and I read the, uh, the the story by Robert Costa in the Washington Post. Romney asserts his independence, and Trump's GOP critics see an opening. I read all of that. 
But really, was it as severe as is being made out to be? No, not at all. And as you know, I mean, Romney's already been backtracking. Um, I just think that uh, if Trump keeps presiding the way he's presided for the first couple of years, uh, I think it'll you know, anybody that wants to challenge him in the primaries is welcome to do it, but I can't imagine that they'll be able to stop him. What do you make of, uh, of, of, of the partial government shutdown, the continuing battle over the border wall, and now you have the Democrats and, uh, and, and Mr. Trump going toe-to-toe, although it was Mr. Mr. Pence who was negotiating with the Democrats a couple of days ago. Where's this, uh, where's it leading? What's the, what's the uh, I mean, what's, what's going on inside the, uh, inside the government of the United States? Well, it's it's fascinating because the, the shutdown became a big deal in the early '90s when Gingrich uh, when Gingrich became speaker. And of course, as far as the media is concerned in the United States, anything negative, anything like a shutdown, is automatically the GOP's fault. So when we've looked at past shutdowns or past threatened shutdowns over the last 20 or so years, it's always quickly pinned on the GOP, and then the congressional GOP gets loose bowels and they quickly fold to whatever the Democrats want. Uh, by Trump taking it on his shoulders, this takes it completely out of the realm or completely away from the Republican Congress. And so basically they have no control over the situation. Uh, and now Trump is saying, hey, it's on me. Uh, and since the American media, of course, blames Trump for everything, including a rainy day, uh, it's like, you know, this is just one more thing. So it doesn't have the sting that it used to. Uh, and I think for Trump and his supporters, the wall is almost a, a defining moment. And is it going to be built? Now, I, I ask you this because, as, as you know better than I, uh, the, the Republicans had every, every sector, sector of the government uh, under their control, apart from the judiciary, and some would argue they might have that. And they weren't able to get the wall done. And now it's Pelosi and Schumer, and you have new incoming, certainly significantly left-wing, members of the Democratic Party, and they're pushing back, and they're trying to score some points, and they're getting ready for the 2020 election. So what's, what's going to happen here? Well, it's going to be very interesting because, first of all, I mean, we just did a survey last week. Of course, virtually no one has felt any impact from the shutdown at all. Um, government employees are, are whining about the shutdown a lot more than everybody else. Well, and government uh, employees are overwhelmingly Democratic. Uh, so it's it's Democrats that are largely being hurt by this. It is, remember, a partial shutdown. So things like Social Security, entitlement payments, uh, the military, all of those things are fully funded. So it's not it's not hurting the average person. Uh, and until the shutdown actually hurts the average person, um, you know, I'm I'm not sure that Trump's going to feel any kind of pushback. I mean, after all, this thing's been going for two weeks now, and. I don't know about you, but I don't see any kind of significant pushback among the American people uh, inside the Beltway. And remember, after all, you know, this is, uh, for those folks, the shutdown is a local issue because we're talking about the federal government, which is largely based here. Uh, it's a big deal. But Trump, Trump's willing to keep the thing closed forever. Uh, and I think that puts a lot more pressure on Democrats from their voters than Republicans and pro-Trump people are going to feel. And when you're surveying Americans, they're not responding negatively to Mr. Trump about any of this? Well, I mean, again, you have to, if you put Trump's name on anything, Roy, you know this in polling, if you put Trump's name on anything, you're going to get a certain amount of negativity, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, no matter what. But we just asked folks flat out. We just said, have you felt, I mean, here, here's how basic it was. First of all, we asked how long has it been shut down, and the majority of people had a pretty good handle on that. But then we asked... In terms of your own personal life, how much of an impact have you felt from the current government shutdown? No impact at all, a minor impact, or a major impact. Nine percent of people said they felt a major impact. Sixty-three percent said they felt nothing at all. So when you're talking about those kind of numbers, you know, shutdown, what shutdown? And the wall, is it going to be built, uh, Fran, or not? I, you know, your guess is as good as mine on that. I, Trump may eventually find a way to get it funded, even if it's not this. But, of course, in my mind, then I immediately see, see uh, the usual public-spirited lawyers jumping in and trying to stop it in court. Uh, so whether the thing is actually ever built or not, I think it's more symbolic uh, or even uh, just trying to create a perception of, hey, it's a lot tougher to get across the border. Uh, that that may, have been, may be of more value than actually having bricks and mortar there. Uh, and when the special prosecutor uh, releases his report, what, what's, the, um, what's the potential impact 
of uh, of of uh, Mr. Mueller's report. If it's if it's condemning and damning uh, the president, then uh, what's what's the what's the fallout? Well, again, if he doesn't charge President Trump with a crime, uh, then I mean, face it, supporters of the president are going to go with exactly what we expected—a waste of millions of taxpayer dollars. The Democrats are going to find any sentence in the thing at all that they can find and go, see, they couldn't, and Trump's guilty of blah, 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 and they're going to build it up to, you know, beyond belief. Um, but as long as Trump doesn't have to go to court, I think he walks through it, to be honest with you. I mean, it's, it's, I think it's an annoyance. I think he needs to get it behind him, uh, but short of Mueller trying to seek indictments of the president himself or you know the the people closest to him in the world. Um, I, I I don't I don't see lasting damage. Okay, and uh, the kind of environment or atmosphere there's going to be within the government. We see uh, at least one new member of the House from uh, Michigan used uh, you know a very crude expletive about uh, the president, and then unfortunately, the, a former Prime Minister of Canada, Kim Campbell, uh, yesterday tweeted, "Yes, he is an MF." Which is really embarrassing to to us in this yeah, country. Yeah, that's not too classy. No. Um, that you know, Roy. Again, it's. Uh, I don't think you win voters in the middle with that kind of talk. Uh, personally, the people I'm talking to in Washington, to be honest, they think the House Democrat, the current class of House Democrats, is the best thing the Republicans have going for them, uh, because these guys are going to just be uh, a, a circus. Uh, and you know, it's like it's like all the expected people who are going to, or the people who are anticipated to jump into the Democratic presidential race. I mean, that's to, it's shaping up to be a total clown car. Uh, so, from a Republican standpoint, uh, fine, put the focus on those people. Uh, let them talk about a seventy percent taxation and stuff like that. Um, when they're talking like that, the Republicans don't need to say a word. Seventy percent taxation. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah, I mean, I mean, yeah, that kind of stuff is. I mean, I. <laughs> it's just. I mean, that's Cloud Cuckoo Land. <laughs> uh, sometimes you wonder whether there, there are any adults in the room. That's uh, unfortunately that's too often the case in Washington. <laughs> I wish it wasn't. <laughs> Fran, thank you so much for the time. It's always good talking to you. I'll, I'll always enjoy it. Bye bye, Fran Coombs, managing editor, Rasmussen polling in the uh, U.S. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 